chapter 12. This is one of those passages, this is why we go verse by verse through certain books of the Bible. There are topics, there are scenarios, there are some places that are really hard to preach and really hard to understand and really hard to digest what is really going on. And so it's all the more important that we have them preached and studied and, and examined. And I got to be honest with you, this was not an easy sermon to prepare uh, because there's a lot of stuff going on in this passage that we don't always really talk about. Things that we don't really examine very often. For example, the Sadducees. Who were they? Well, we haven't even ran into them really in this gospel account yet. This is probably one of the first times Jesus interacts with them. And yet, here they are. They show up. What do we do with them? What do we know about them? Where do we, where do we go with what Jesus is going to say to them and what they're going to say to Jesus? Where's Jesus at? He's still in the temple. This is still the holdover from from uh, the gauntlet he's been running for the religious leaders. And so we come to this interaction and, and we read it. And many times we focus on the wrong things. Just like a couple weeks back, I said the Chinese proverb, if you st spend too much time looking at the finger that points you to the moon, you're missing the point. And this is one of those scenarios. It's very similar. If we spend too much time looking at the wrong thing, we miss the, the right thing, and we miss out on a good thing. So if you will, go ahead, stand with me. We're going to go ahead and read, beginning in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and rise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You may be seated this morning. Like I said, there's a lot to unpack in this little interaction here. These men come to Jesus and they, they ask this question about marriage. And I've titled this message today, Marriage in Eternity. Because really, this whole interaction, just as a heads up, it's not really about marriage. Even It's, it's really not even, I mean it is a little bit, about the resurrection the most important thing from this is the marriage between Christ and his church and eternity. That's the real marriage that matters. Because and if you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. The most important thing, the most important point about eternity is not who spends eternity with you, but who you spend eternity with. Amen. And I say that, you might hear that, you might say, well, that sounds a little self-contradictory, right? Not really, because the who you spend eternity with hopefully is Christ. 
It doesn't matter who goes to heaven with you. Are you going to spend eternity with the Savior? And our lives as, as Christians is an attempt to not just go ourselves, but to take others with us, not for our sake, but so they might know the goodness and the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ for all eternity. So we read this and we understand that the whole point is not even about marriage. It's not really about the resurrection. There's, there's other things going on in this dialogue between these men and Jesus that we have to make sure we catch. H.B. Charles once said this. He said, we can be wrong about things that do not matter, but we cannot afford to be wrong about God. We cannot afford to be wrong about the Father. We cannot afford to be wrong about the Son. And we cannot afford to be wrong about the Holy Spirit. If we miss that, we miss everything. Now these Sadducees, they show up and they think they're going to quiz Jesus. They think they're going to really rake him over the coals. And it very quickly becomes the other way around. Because they have so badly missed the point of what they're even asking. They've missed the point of the whole purpose of their ministry, really, their whole purpose of being in the temple, being a religious leader in this society. They've missed all of it because they've gotten sidetracked by so many other silly things, things that don't matter. And because of that, they, they missed the point about God. Now, we do the same thing. And it's okay to have a hobby horse, a, a theological hobby horse is what I like to call it. You know, I, I love some scholars who specialize in the New, New Testament, only the New Testament. They don't disregard the Old Testament. Their whole job revolves around building from the Old Testament. I like some pastors who love to just talk about biblical prophecy. That's their hobby horse. That's not their main focus, though. All the scriptures point us to Christ. Do we agree? All the, if all the scriptures point us to Christ, then what's the main focus of the scriptures? Christ. But so easily we can, we can go down these rabbit trails, angels and demons. I think of Michael Heiser does, does that quite a bit. But even Heiser would say, but what does this, how does this connect us to Jesus? We focus on the giants and the, the crazy, strong Samson and, and things like that. And those can become good hobby horses to study. And that's great. But if it's not taking us to Jesus, we've missed the whole point entirely. Amen? So that's what, that's what the Sadducees have done. That's what they do. That's what they do best. They take their hobby horse and it becomes their obsession and if your hobby horse becomes an obsession, then I have news for you, it's become an idol. And that's not good. We study scripture, we, we come to church because we want to glorify Christ above all things. And that's what we have to remember. It's not, it's not about who goes to heaven so we can spend time with them. It's not about the resurrection and what that will be like. It's Am I going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity? That's the question we have to ask. That's what we have to focus on. Now we come into this story and in verse 18, it picks up again. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. I want to first point out, these men came to Jesus 
Last week, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were sent to Jesus. But the Sadducees have been sitting back in the shadows, in the corners, watching these exchanges, hearing Jesus put them down. And now as the more intelligent group, they're going to come up and they're going to have their say. They're going to have their time with Jesus. Nobody sent them. They sent themselves. They see their opportunity to come and patronize this rabbi slash carpenter. This, who does this guy think he is? He's not even from Jerusalem. And they come to Jesus. The Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? Man, they, they were an interesting group of guys. They actually were the majority of the religious community in Jerusalem. They held most of the seats of power. We hear about the Pharisees. You want to know why we hear about the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees were out where Jesus was out. They happened to go and, and deal with the people. The Pharisees liked to get out of Jerusalem and evangelize and share, well, their version of the law. They liked to go out and make sure the people were under the oral tradition, the scribal laws. The Sadducees didn't do that because they didn't care about those things. The Sadducees focused mostly on Moses and the writings of Moses. Moses was their guy. Okay? The law, what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's their Bible and nothing else. The rest of the Old Testament, it's called the Tanakh in, in Jewish literature. The Tanakh is the whole Old Testament. They don't, they don't care about that. They only want the law of Moses. Moses is their guy. Now, because of this, they ignored the oral traditions of the Pharisees. They didn't care about the scribal laws and the other things that had been added. They only focused on the law. Now, the Pharisees, of course, you can imagine, did not like that. They, these guys were natural enemies. Isn't it interesting and I pointed this out last week that when the Pharisees were choosing their allies, they didn't go to the Sadducees. They go to the Roman shills. They go to the Herodians, the, the people who are absolutely not in favor of the Jewish people, but the Pharisees would rather go to them than the Sadducees. Why is that? Because these two parties were definitely enemies. The name Pharisee, if you recall from way back in this study, the name Pharisee means one who is set apart. And that's meant to convey holiness. That's meant to convey righteousness. Well, we are the ones set apart. You know what the Sadducees, you know what that name means? We're the ones who are right. We're the ones who are just. So you can be the one set apart, but we're always going to be right. It's almost like when you're naming your sports teams, Maybe you want to be, oh, we're the Lisbon Broncos, right? Or the, the NDSU Bison or New York Jets. And the Sadducees were like, no, we're the winners. Because <laughs> even what, no matter what the scorecard, we win. We're better. They, their team name, they were like the Louisiana better than you. <laughs> that, was their, that was their thing. We are the ones who are right. And the name was meant as a taunt towards the Pharisees. Now, when they ruled, and they, they did rule, they ran the show for the most part. It was from the temple under the supervision of Rome. 
They ruled the people of Israel with Rome through the temple. That, the temple was the focal part, focal point of their ministry. They didn't leave the temple. That's why we don't hear about them much. Because they don't go traveling the, t- the, the countryside to find Jesus. They don't go out trying to make new disciples. They don't go out trying to spread teaching. Everybody should come to them. Everybody should want to come to this holy place, the temple. And that has a cost. Because when the temple is destroyed in AD 70, that's the last we hear about the Sadducees. That's how closely their reign was tied to the temple and to Rome. Well, what else happens in 70 AD with the falling of the temple? Who's responsible? Rome. So that connection severed. This completely undoes the Sadducees. But yet here they are. They come to Jesus and they don't want to set Jesus up. They don't want to come to Jesus and, and try and pin him in some theological thing or catch him in blasphemy. That's not why they are there. They come to Jesus because they want to expose him as a fool. He's ridiculous. Where's his education? Where does he come from? He's some backwoods, hillbilly, wannabe rabbi. We're going to make him look silly. And they do it by using a very silly illustration. Now Matthew tells us this all happens on the very same day that Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and the Herodians, which also happened on the same day as the interaction with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This has been a long day for Jesus. And now, who, last of all, who's coming to him? Well, not last of all, but still, one more group comes to him, and they have one more thing. This is all in Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch, the, the court of the Gentiles. They come up to Jesus, and, and they begin their questioning. Now, we have to say this. We, we have the scene set. We know where they're at, right? We know who these people are now. We know there's going to be some interaction and they are going to try and put Jesus in his rightful place. They're going to try and and humiliate him. And they come to him and they bring this question. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man's uh, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now notice, what do they do right out of the gate? Same thing the Pharisees did. Teacher, there's a little bit of flattery. They don't call him good teacher. They don't call him bad teacher. They don't call him true teacher. They don't call him false teacher. But they acknowledge he is an instructor of men. It's that Greek word didaskale all over again. You are one who is teaching the people. Whether or not you're teaching them right or wrong, we're going to find out. Now, they don't spend any other time with flattery like the Pharisees did. If you recall, the Pharisees said, Teacher, we know that you are true and and do not care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. Sadducees don't waste time with that. Teacher, here's the deal. Here's the thing. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, all of what they just said is true, by the way. There's not a hint of deception in what they've just said. They're referring to what's called the Leverite Law, 
It's mentioned back in Deuteronomy 25. It reads like this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Again, it's called a leveret marriage. It is a marriage that takes place to keep a family line in place as well as the property because all of Israel was divided up amongst the tribes right and within those tribes you have your clans you have your your families and all that all of that all the way down everybody's family gets a portion of land this is so everybody has some property so nobody goes without and also the more you divide up the property the more you thin out the people who can run the property till the property take care of the property the easier it is for a foreign entity to come in and take that property away because you've spread out ownership so much this whole thing actually has its roots way back in Genesis 38 if you recall many of you are probably familiar with the story uh, Judah ancestor to Jesus ancestor to jo uh, Joseph's brother, sorry, Joseph's brother Judah, he has these three sons. His oldest son named Ur takes this wife named Tamar. She's kind of an important figure in scripture actually. Ur takes this lady as his wife and Ur's pretty wicked. We don't know what he did. We don't know exactly. He must have been really bad though because God strikes him and he dies. And then Judah says, okay, well, to preserve his property, preserve his inheritance, Onan, the younger brother, he's going to come and he's going to marry Tamar and they're going to have an offspring. But Onan does some wicked stuff too. He dies. Well, we've all heard that joke before. So we're not going to marry off the third guy because we don't want the same thing to happen, right? So he tells Tamar, you go live with your family. And, and but that, we're not going to get into the whole story, but that's the gist of it. That's what's done. The, this third son, Sheila, that's the girl's name, by the way. Don't know if anybody told you to that, but whatever. Boy named Sue type of situation. He doesn't get to marry this lady. And there's this whole other thing that comes out of it. But the principle is sound. We want to make sure the inheritance stays in the name of the older brother so the property stays in the family line. And this happens to stay in Israel until it becomes law. Moses writes it down all the way into the future, into this, this story about this lady named Naomi whose husband drags her over to the Moabite country. Now we all know the Moabites are bad people, right? Moabites aren't good people, but they have this son and uh, actually two sons and they marry them off to some Moabite women. Well, all the men die. So it's just Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And Orpah says, hey, you know what? This has been a fun ride. I'm out. So Naomi says, okay, well, we're going back to Bethlehem. There's food there now. The famine's over. So they're going to go back. And in the very next chapter, the chapter two of Ruth, she meets this guy named Boaz. And Boaz is called a man of valor. Hebrew word is chayil. And it means he's a mighty man. He's a good man. In fact, in the entire story of Ruth, Boaz is the only one who never points out she's a Moabite. He sees her as a good woman. In fact, later in chapter 3, he calls her a woman of valor, a woman of Kail. And then finally he does refer to her as a Moabite because there's a, a redeemer, there's a kinsman redeemer. That's what the, the next person in line to marry her is called. There's someone closer. And so he goes to this guy and he says, look, you're next in line to inherit all this property from Naomi. And the guy says, hey, that sounds great. Yeah, there's one catch. You have to marry Ruth 
And he's sure to add the Moabite. What's that tell us? That tells us, A, Moabite is a negative thing because now all of a sudden the guy doesn't want the property. And B, Boaz loved Ruth. In that moment, he brings up the only negative thing he could think of. She's a Moabite. So this guy doesn't want it. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story, but it's about the lever at law. Now, the Sadducees don't care about that story. Why? Because it's not in the law. It's not in the writings of Moses. It takes place in the book of Ruth. Probably doesn't even, they they would think it doesn't belong in the Bible at all. But it's a beautiful story about God's grace and God's mercy. In fact, when you get to Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, who's there? Who's mentioned? Ruth, Boaz, Tamar, Judah. It's a lever at marriage. So Jesus is very familiar with what they're talking about this day. They have come into Jesus' whole home court and probably not even realized it. They may not even be thinking about his genealogy and about his family. And by the way, every Jewish man would know his genealogy. And so Jesus is very familiar with the lever at law. Oh, you want to bring this up? Okay. Teachers of the law, let's do this. So they, they begin to question him. Everything they've said, by the way, not wrong, not wrong. Verse 20, Here's their scenario. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. Okay, this is a common issue. We've just seen two separate times that's happened in Israel, right? Two times. The next oldest brother should marry his, his brother's wife, but there's this hiccup. There's, there's, this is where things begin to unravel for them because they don't even really seem to grasp this, but this is a fictional account, now, here's what they're going to do. Just a heads up. They're going to take one of the most tragically possible events and try and get an exception to the rule to prove their point. We see this all the time today, do we not? Watch, it, watch a debate on abortion. And here's the thing. Here's what you'll hear happen. Well, abortion should be legal except in the case of mm, rape. I would say no. Should still be illegal. Two wrongs do not make a right. You're murdering, you're ending a human life. Okay, but what if the girl was raped by an uncle and if she has, gives birth to the baby, they're both going to die? You know how rare that scenario is? Even Planned Parenthood would be going, eh. It's very rare. But people will do this. They will bring about the worst possible scenario because now if you don't see things my way, you're the monster. Not the person who did this stuff, allegedly. Not the person who's in, in this situation. But the whole scenario, now pay, it's an attack on the character of the person. That's kind of what they're doing to Jesus here. They're trying to set him up. By the way, just going to say this, and this is not a political opinion. This is a biblical fact, biblical command. If anybody ever asks, your pastor has said, vote for the party that doesn't want to kill babies. Don't do that. Don't vote for the party that wants to kill them. But this man dies and he has no children left for his wife to raise them. And so we go on to verse 21 and 22. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Getting suspicious yet? Right? Is she a black widow? She was some kind of Russian spy taking these men out? 
Is she just, you know, taking out life insurance policy after life insurance policy? And, and when these guys are asleep, they get to breathe into the pillow? No, we don't know. The Sadducees would have us believe that these people are all dying of natural causes. I don't think so. I think she's undercooking the chicken. Okay? I saw this Facebook post where this lady was going to cook raw chicken strips. And someone said, you're going to get salmonella. And she said, that's not salmon, it's chicken. I don't know. Maybe that's what this lady was doing. But these people are all dying. The entire, because of this scenario, everyone should be now suspicious of what they're really asking. Because this is really crazy. And the Sadducees have this opportunity here. They could come to Jesus. They could ask about the law. They could ask his opinion about Moses. They could ask him, do you think the Psalms are scripture? They could ask all these other things. And in a sense, they are. But they're trying to hammer him on this one small point, a, a, a thing that they didn't even really believe in, this resurrection thing that's going to happen at the end of history. We read on in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now again, the problem with this whole thing, the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. What are they doing here? Mark's made it very clear they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in anything supernatural, by the way. This whole process to the Sadducee mind, this is all one big joke. This is one big prank to pull on Jesus. Foolishness to trap a fool, or so they believe. Now the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection, except their version was that the resurrection is very similar to life now. That when we're raised, we're wearing the same clothes or similar clothes, and you're married to whoever you're married to, and you live in a similar house, and, and it's just basically life 2.0. That's the Pharisaical idea. The Pharisees argued about a lot of things, but when it came to the resurrection, they would be very contentious. They were very much, they were always seeking knowledge, they were never learning, but they very much wanted to know about the resurrection, the future, the, the Holy Spirit, all these extra things. Now, when they would debate the Sadducees, you have to remember, they could not use external scripture other than Moses. So they've got to come along and they've got to somehow argue using the writings of Moses in a way to convince the Sadducees. They've got to find some theological doctrinal point, whatever it is, and drive that home. Now, one, one scholar I read said that they would often quote this passage from Deuteronomy. It's God speaking. It says, see now that I, even I am he, and there's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there's no one that can deliver out of my hand. And what's the problem with that? It's eisegesis. It has nothing to do with the resurrection. God's talking about he's the author and, and finisher of life. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who takes life away. It's not about the resurrection at all. And no matter what they would say to the Sadducees, whether they had that or not in their arsenal, whether they used that, the Sadducees' view of the resurrection was so narrow and their, their limited view of Scripture was so narrow, they disregarded all the other evidence that was laid out before them. 
Had they been a little bit more open to the truth, they would have understood that just as God spoke to Moses, God spoke to David in the Psalms. In Psalm 49, 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. That's a resurrection verse. God probably spoke to whoever wrote Job. Job is older than the law. They didn't care. But Job says this. Job says, after my skin's been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. There's hints of a resurrection. The Pharisees don't want to hear that. Pharisees don't care about the prophets. Even though Isaiah says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you dwell in the dust, awake, you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. That, they, didn't, they didn't care about Daniel. Daniel was one of those guys during the, the entire time they were in captivity. Daniel was a prophet who rose up. Many people in Israel would have respected Daniel, not the Sadducees. Daniel says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and some to everlasting contempt. But this wasn't enough for the Sadducees. They were so focused on Moses and the law. The law is not about the resurrection. The law was, in its time, a, a code of ethics, a way to live, guides for how to go about your every purpose. But more than that, and we understand this, it was pointing us to the Messiah. It was pointing us to Christ. The Apostle Paul makes that very clear in the book of Romans. But the Sadducees would miss that. Because to them, the law was it. Moses was their guy. And they're left missing who's sitting right in front of them. Well, everything the law has been pointing them towards. If anybody was going to read the law and come away worshiping Jesus, it should be the Sadducees, but they've missed the point. And the Sadducees denied more than the resurrection. They denied all supernatural things. They denied the existence of angels. That's what Acts chapter 23 tells us. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So we're left to ask then, if they really don't believe in the resurrection, and they really don't believe in the power of God, what are they really doing here? What's their point? They don't believe in the miraculous? What are they asking? Well, in a sense, they've, they're asking the same thing they've expected the Pharisees to do. They're saying, can you prove to us the, resurrection, uh, the existence of the resurrection? Can you prove to us that other scripture matters? Can you prove to me that I'm in the wrong? Most people don't do that unless they really think they're right. It's very rare when you sit in a classroom, someone says, I know I have this completely wrong. Teacher, could you show me how to do it right? Everyone seems to have their own idea. And they, they don't believe in the resurrection. They've painted this entire ridiculous scenario. They've cooked it up because if they've, their idea is, you've got to see Jesus. Logically, this resurrection thing doesn't make any sense. Because whose, whose wife is she going to be when we come into the eternity? Now, this is the problem that many Christians fall into. They've taken their philosophy and they've applied it to the scriptures. They've taken their own view and they've applied it to the word of God. Whereas what we should do is be fed by the scriptures and apply it to our philosophy. Our own worldview should be shaped by the word of God, not letting the world shape our view of scripture. Amen? 
And like I said, rarely does anyone go to a teacher and ask a question so they can be proven wrong. So they've got something up their sleeve. Well, the Pharisees would, would agree with us today, by the way. They would agree that it's not about who spends eternity with you, but where you spend it. But the Sadducees, they didn't believe you spent it anywhere. They're much like the modern-day atheists. This life is all we have. You might say, well, why would they choose to, to follow the law? Why wouldn't they just go out and do whatever they wanted to do? Because they wanted to make the most of their life for their God. They were still Jewish. They still wanted to serve Yahweh as best they could. But this was their only shot at it. And there was no eternity. There was nothing else to look forward to. They understood in Genesis 3, whenever God tells Adam... For you are dust, and to dust you, you shall return. They understood that to mean, this is it. There's nothing else. So we have to look then, what does Jesus say to them? What does he really get at here? We go to verse 24. It says, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's a pretty big slap in the face. Jesus was kind, Jesus was loving, but he's not being very nice here. In fact, just the day before, he was flipping over tables, smacking things out of people's hands and, and blocking them in the temple court. So he's not always going to be nice, Jesus, but he's being loving, he's being truthful, he's being kind, he's trying to get them to snap out of this whatever it is they're in. He's basically saying to them, just like the cat in the hat, not only are you wrong, you're stupid. That's what he's kind of getting at with them. I know some people don't like that, but the Cambridge Dictionary defines stupid as showing poor judgment or little intelligence, and the Sadducees are doing both here. He says, this, this is why you're wrong. You're dumb, right? That's kind of what he's getting at. Being Another definition I heard of stupidity was being ignorant of an important matter and not caring to learn about it. That's what these men have done. And so Jesus says, this is why you don't get it. You don't really care enough to find out. You don't know about the power of God because you don't want the power of God. You don't know about the resurrection. You don't know about the future because you don't want to open your mind up. You're so narrow-minded in your focus. And the only answer, like I said, that can really, really drill this home to the Sadducees is a response with good theology and an appeal to the Torah. It's the only thing they're going to understand. It's the only thing they're going to consider. And it's definitely the only thing they even remotely respect if they truly want to hear the truth at all. And Jesus' answer is going to do these things, but it's also going to expose their lack of knowledge of all the scriptures. The fact that all scripture is God-breathed. Because they've limited themselves to Moses. They've given no room to the prophets. They've given no room to the Psalms. No room to the wisdom literature. All of that. They'd have a deeper understanding of the miracles of God had they done so. But they don't because they haven't. This knowledge would have enabled them to believe in God's power to raise the dead. But again, they don't really want to believe that. They don't want to believe in the angels. They don't want to believe in the supernatural because that might mean there's a life after this. And they may not like where they're going in that life. Again, it's a heart issue. No matter the evidence, no matter how high the evidence has been stacked, they know what they know, they want what they want, and that's the direction they're going to go. 
And that's when Jesus really begins to cut to the chase. Verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that passage. Jesus is actually going to answer the question in two stages, the first of which he's going to explain that the life in the kingdom of God, life in the resurrection is not like life now. That's half their problem. They are looking at eternity through the scope of the temporal. They are looking at the glory of God, the holiness, the, the amazingness of eternity through what's right in front of them. Notice Jesus, Jesus uses their own words, by the way. They said, <clears throat> and in the resurrection, when they rise again, Jesus says, yeah, when, not if. When they rise Jesus says, when they rise, it's not an if it'll happen. It's not an if it, or it may happen. It's guaranteed to happen. And when they rise from the dead, they're not given in marriage. They're not married to anybody. They're like the angels. See, their question's completely wrong. It's not who are they going to be married to. They're not going to be married at all. There is no marriage in the resurrection. Sorry, Jen, you don't get to live with me for the rest of eternity. She's probably thinking, well, one lifetime's good enough. <laughs> Take that for what you will, I guess, but. <laughs> Who said, Ron, you're fired? <laughs> Doesn't even work here, but. I've lost my place. <laughs> I just lost everything. There goes the entire sermon. Let's just close in prayer. No. Jesus says our, our new life is definitely not like the life we have now. It's totally different. And, and the rest of Scripture is going to tell us that in eternity we are in the presence of Christ. We are worshiping him in the presence of Christ. You know the closest, the, the best glimpse of eternity? You know what, you want to know what it is? Where you can get the best glimpse of eternity? In church. Church on a Sunday morning. Adrian Rogers once said something to the effect of, if you don't want to go to church, I, I have a strong feeling you don't really want to go to heaven. He's not saying if you don't go to church, you don't go to heaven. But he's saying if you don't like going to worship God in the presence of other believers, being around other believers, and being in the presence of the Almighty, you're going to really hate heaven because that's exactly what it is. And that's the, that's the idea Jesus says our new life there is not like it is now. And then he affirms the existence of angels. He brings up angels, not the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. The Sadducees don't think they exist. And Jesus says, no, by the way, they exist. And in the resurrection, we're going to be like the angels. Now, he does not say, he says, we will be like angels. He does not, see, he does not say you will be an angel. That's Bugs Bunny theology. That is not biblical theology. Please, on your Facebook page, when somebody dies, do not say, well, heaven just needed another angel. Heaven has all the angels they needed. Okay? That person, for better or worse, is either in the presence of Christ or he's somewhere else. You don't have to say anything. You know what is, would mean more to that person who's grieving? Hey, you know what? I'm praying for you. I'm here if you need anything. Here's my cell phone number. Give me a call. Saying heaven needed another angel is not only insensitive and in a way to just pass, pass dismiss the entire situation it's also really bad theology 
Jesus makes that very clear. We do not become angels. In eternity, believers are like the angels in that we are spiritual, we are immortal, we are not going to die. Okay? That's the point Jesus is making here. Now, Paul, who, by the way, was a Pharisee, he explains this even clearer to the Corinthian church when he says, so is, it, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That's how we're like the angels. I don't want to play the harp. I think the harp sounds beautiful, but even in eternity, I'm pretty sure God's going to go, nope, you still have no musical talent, Jeff, sorry. Verse 26, Jesus continues, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Oh, the Sadducees would not like that. Have we not read, do you know who we are? Moses is our guy. Of course we know that story. Now Jesus is affirming that Moses taught life after death. They've not thought about it this way before. The Sadducees would know this story. This is Moses' origin story. Now, I'm not talking about the basket in the Nile River, Pharaoh's daughter, any of that stuff. This is the moment, the burning bush, that's when Moses becomes Moses, right? Pretty much, that's what sets him. This is the time he gets bit by the radioactive spider for the younger kids, all right? This is where he discovers, you know, mom and dad dead in the alley. Wait, that was Batman. Bad example. Bad example. Uh, but this is the part where his story really begins to take off. And they would know this. They would be very familiar. And in that interaction with the burning bush, what does God say exactly? Exodus 3, 6. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And when God says this to Moses, he's not saying anything past tense. He's not saying, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham because he still is and he always will be. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they were in the grave for centuries and nothing's left but bones, when God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's affirming this commitment that he has made to humanity to redeem them as whole persons, body, mind, and soul, and they have eternal communion with him. That is what he's saying in those few words. And Jesus is teaching them that this is not just limited to the law. Job 19 was inspired just as much as Exodus was. When Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin's been thus destroyed in my flesh I'll see God. This is basically the whole point of the valley of dry bones. Can these bones live? Well, Lord, if you will it, and the Lord wills it for those who are in relationship, right relationship with him. He wills it. In Matthew, Matthew's account makes this a little clearer for us. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? 
Normally when you say, didn't you read? It's what was written. Jesus is saying, haven't you read what was spoken? And in doing that, he's affirming every time a prophet received a word from the Lord, every time one of those Old Testament saints wrote something down led by the Holy Spirit, God was speaking. Ruth is just as inspired as the book of Exodus. Psalms is just as inspired as the book of Genesis. These things are all the very voice of the living God. This book is God speaking to us. That's the whole, like I said, that's kind of the the whole thing. Scripture is not just for us to read. It's for us to hear and for us to heed. Paul says it's the very breath of God. It is the ultimate authority in the life of the believer. Have you not read what was spoken? What God said, men wrote down, and that is our authority. Later in Matthew, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, he's going to say, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Do you know what he just said in that? You go write down and teach everything I've said. What is that? That's commissioning them to write scripture. That's what he's saying there. That's the whole point. But Jesus isn't done with the Sadducees. Let's not forget about those guys. He's not done. He's got a final word to say for them. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He emphasizes that those who are in right relationship with Yahweh God are going to live forever. There is a resurrection. But then he emphasizes their incorrectness. He says, you are quite wrong. The CSB, I like how it says it. You are badly mistaken. You're so far off the mark, guys. That's what he's saying to them. You've completely missed this. And he's scolding them. Jesus is scolding these men who should know better, but they've adamantly resisted God's truth. Despite all the arguments they've had, all the teaching they've had, all the time, all the tradition, all the time in the scripture they've had available to them, all their learning, all that really mattered was their position of influence in their life. Being the Sadducee, being the one who was right. They weren't seeking the truth. They were seeking to appease what they wanted to be true. They weren't seeking to believe that which is true. And again, this circles back once again to the entire problem with the religious community in Jesus' time. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, even the Herodians, and now the Sadducees, they've all got their view in mind. And and all the evidence of Jesus and who he is and what he's done and all this this other stuff he's pointed out to them and he's, he's made very clear to them, it's not enough. It's not enough because they want what they want and they miss the point of the law. And the whole point of the law is to point them to Christ. On the other hand, the Pharisees were so caught up with the supernatural and the traditions of men, they missed the point. These men thought they would come to humiliate Jesus, and in doing so, they've permitted themselves to be talked down to. 
They've been scolded, and they've been exposed as very ignorant scholars of the law, more than they dared to ever believe. You see, the whole question is flawed. Their premise is flawed because it comes from a flawed understanding of God's word. Today, many people make similar assumptions about heaven. Many people have, have their own view of scripture that they've let, I don't know if it's teaching from when they were younger, TV programs or what, but they come into scripture, they, they open their Bible and they've already got in mind what they want to hear. I don't like that verse. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to hear that, so I'm going to turn the page. I've heard people say that in funerals, I've heard a pastor say, well, you know, heaven needed another angel. Those of you who know me, you know how much self-control I exhibited in that moment? I wanted to just fly up there. No, I'm kidding a little. I've heard people say, if my kids don't go to heaven, I don't want to go to heaven. That wouldn't be heaven for me. Then you don't deserve heaven. And that's a fact. And please hear me, as a father, as a dad, I have kids still old enough to call me daddy. I desperately want my children to go to heaven. I desperately want them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But understand this. I have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ first. That's more important to me. I want them to go, not so that for all eternity they get to sit with dad, but for all eternity they get to enjoy the goodness that is Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. It does not matter who spends eternity with us. It matters if they spend and if we spend eternity with Christ. Too often we can get off track. We can become the Sadducees. Jesus affirmed this for me. Maybe we read scripture, we'll read a verse because we want to win an argument, not really understand what it's saying. Or we read our Bibles to make ourselves feel better. We're looking for that one positive affirmation, right? And that's not to say that you can't be encouraged by scripture. Scripture should be encouraging to the believer. But if the only reason you're reading scripture is so that it can speak to you and hype you up and make you feel good, you're not reading scripture so that you can know Jesus better. You're reading scripture to appease the God of self. Sometimes we read it just to, just to escape, just to get our mind on something else. And that's fine too, as long as our something else is Christ. You know, so often we hear people, I've heard people, and I've even said this myself, when I get to heaven, I want to ask God about blank, this or that, right? Or my favorite is when I like, some of you know, I like to argue with Calvinists and, and uh, <laughs> in the cessationist camp and stuff. And and sometimes we like to have this discussion and one of them will say, well, we can argue about this in heaven. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Or I'll say that to end the discussion, right? Because we're both tired. The truth is, I'm not going to ask God anything in eternity. You're not either. And we're not going to argue about anything in heaven. Because you're not going to ask questions when you're in the presence of the answer. And you're not going to argue about anything when you're in the presence of the almighty truth. That's just the fact. There's a great story, and I'm going to ask the music team to come back up here, and we'll move to close. But there's a great story about George Whitefield, who was a Calvinist, by the way, and a powerful preacher. 
And he was best friends with a man you might have heard of named John Wesley. Whitefield trained himself how to preach. He was a very educated, very smart guy, but he would go off into the fields and learn the acoustics of the pasture so that when he preached, they didn't have microphones back then, but he, he would preach and everyone could hear Whitefield. And he was a passionate preacher. And between the two of them, Wesley and Whitefield, they lit England on fire. Huge revival. Whitefield came to the United States, I want to say for about three years. I might not be accurate on that time, but he comes over to the States and he preaches from town to town. People would travel for eight hours to go hear Whitefield preach for two hours. You think, man, I drove 30 minutes. Pastor Jeff's long-winded. You have no idea what those poor people went through. But Whitefield was so passionate. In fact, there's a, a story that said at one point while preaching so passionately, it was as if Whitefield was wrestling with the devil himself. This passionate preacher. And he goes back to Great Britain. And he tries to connect with his old friend. And Wesley will have nothing to do with him because he's a Calvinist. It's a secondary issue, by the way. But Wesley's drawn his line in the sand. He will have nothing to do with his friend. And it becomes a very famous rift between two brothers in Christ. To the point a reporter comes to Whitefield and he says, when you get to heaven, do you think you'll see John Wesley? And the implication is, do you think John Wesley's saved because of the way he's treated you? And this is what Whitefield says. He says, I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him. In other words, I'm not going to see John Wesley in heaven. John Wesley's going to be so close to the throne of God and I'm going to be way at the back. That should be our attitude. That should be our heart. I want them to be so close to the presence of God I want them to experience Jesus Christ so passionately, so powerfully, that when I get to heaven, I don't see him because they're so much closer to him than I could ever hope to be. Church, we do this so often. We chase our rabbit trails. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be with the people you love. But don't talk to them about Jesus so they'll spend eternity with you. Talk to them about Jesus so they'll know Jesus. And I'm going to say one more thing, and I know this is probably not going to be very popular. We're a Pentecostal church. The Assemblies of God is a Pentecostal fellowship of churches. One of our defining doctrines is that when someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit, they, the initial physical evidence is they speak in tongues. And I believe that. But somewhere along the line, we became obsessed with the symptom and not the strength. Speaking in tongues as the baptism of the Holy Spirit is evidence of something that more powerful is happening inside the believer. And if we become so enamored with just speaking in tongues and the, the hyper-charismatic hoopla that we forget that we are to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and be his witnesses. We have missed the point entirely. And I pray if that's the case, we never speak in tongues again. Because that's become an idol. That's become an obsession. And not advancing 
Christ. Many of us here, I've heard many of you say, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I believe I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. But we've got to start asking ourselves, am I about the tongues or am I about the evangelism? Am I about the tongues or am I about being a powerful witness for Jesus Christ? Because if your baptism in the Holy Spirit did not compel you to be a better witness for Jesus and a bolder witness for Jesus, you did not speak in tongues enabled by the Holy Spirit. It might have been a spirit, and if that's the case, you need to repent. But the Holy Spirit enables us to bring people to Jesus. So with that said, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. We're going to worship, and I would ask you, search your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit, search my heart. What's my mission? Am I about my obsession, or am I about bringing people to Christ my Savior.